morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where in the world you are and what time of the day you're listening to this, the Ask podcast. Today, I'm joined by um, a very good journalist friend of mine, uh, Paul Brown. Paul, uh, you are obviously much better talking about yourself than I am talking about you. Um, so, I'm going to I'm going to leave the introduction to you. But um, thank you very much for spending the time with me. No problem. Um, well, I'm a, a London beat writer for Reach, so I write for the Daily Star, Daily Mirror, and Daily Express, but also a big Evertonian. So I do, especially on, on Twitter, tend to um, get involved in, in a lot of uh, blues stuff, basically. Paul, you have, because um, you're based in London, one of the, uh, the great things I know about you is that you your understanding of uh, how machinery operates is... Uh, somewhat better than most so let's start the conversation with with, with talking about Farhad Nashiri what, okay. what what's your view of where we are where we've been and where we're going to go uh, I, I find Nashiri a, a bit of an enigma um, when he first arrived uh, I heard only good things about him in terms of his his football knowledge and he meant business with with what he was doing um, that he'd always desperately been seeking for a, a chance, an opportunity like this at, at a club to, to, you know, to make a big impact in, in the Premier League. Someone who knows him very well described him as the, the best investor in the history of the league, which was quite a, quite a billing to give him. I'm, I'm not sure that's quite, um, not sure it's quite turned out that way, although the, you know, the financial outlay that he's, he's put into the club has, has certainly been impressive and, and massive and, and shows that he has ambition. Um, I think where, where perhaps he's, he's fallen down and, and he may admit this himself um, privately, if not so much in, in, in public is um, he's made some very bad decisions and he's allowed himself to be guided by um, people who, who probably shouldn't really be in positions to guide him um, I think he's been a very hands-off owner, which has suited some of the people already at the club. Uh, but it means he's delegated a lot of responsibility to those people. And are they the best people to be taking Everton forward? Probably not. Um, so I think the money is there and the ambition is there. And he is still heavily engaged with, with Everton. But you, you couldn't really say that he's been that successful with the project that he, he tried to undertake since he's come in. I, I mean, you know, as, as an opening statement, I think I think that's absolutely correct. Um, I'd be interested to know when the person who said he's the best investor in the league <laughs> said that. <laughs> it might have been some time ago. Um, but you well, shortly I, after he came in, in, in fact. <laughs> okay. But that person at least still has complete faith and belief that Mashiri will do exactly what he says, that he will build the stadium, that he will take the club into the top four and um, getting, get them competing regularly in the Champions League. So that, that person is still, is still um, very confident of that. Yeah, and, uh, I, I mean, look, I, I've become more critical of him in, in, in recent months. Um, but I think nobody can doubt his financial commitment to the club, which you know, has, has actually probably gone beyond what he initially thought it would be. Mm. Um, but the problem is that the, the financial commitment that he's now forced to make in order to, effectively, in order to keep us solvent, um, is because of the bad decisions that have been made. Yeah. 
and that's and, and that's the difficulty that I have that it's taken him an awful long time to if indeed he has uh, recognize uh, where the problems lie well I would like to think that in, in appointing brands he's gone some way to addressing that now the, right. the setup might not might not be functioning exactly how how it should still but I'm told that that he thinks brands is this amazing transfer guru who you know knows everything there is to know about football he, he thinks he's finally got the proper big brain that he needs there to to run the club and he has complete faith that that brands will will do what he's um been tasked with and and i'm told he'll, he'll get his full support so anyone who thinks that and there, there probably is some tension i guess between ancelotti and brands moving in different directions in, in certain areas but anyone who thinks that um Brands might be on his way out, could be in for a, a bit of a shock, I think. I think Mashiri actually quite loves the guy. Yeah, I, I, I get that impression. Um, and it wouldn't make, well, say it wouldn't make any sense to, to allow Brands to move at the end of his contract next summer. Um, but of course, he's, you know, <laughs> one could argue he's not made some, he's, or he's made some uh, decisions that haven't been sensible in the past. Mm. So to me, I mean, wh- where we are now is clearly very different say from where we were even just a few months ago and I mean this is conjecture on my part but I'd be interested in, in hearing your views on it. it seems to me that while Brands has got like a long-term strategy in terms of reducing the age of players in in the club making people more um, sellable uh, at some point in, in the future Angelotti has come in and taken an entirely pragmatic view as to what we need to do in order to get performance on the pitch uh, now as against performance on the pitch, say in, in two or three years time. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of the, the tension comes from. I mean, Brands was brought in with that brief. Mashiri agreed that um, a slow build was necessary and that the squad size and age had to come down and that the club needed to start investing in, in younger players for future value to build something over time. Um, but that's not really Ancelotti's forte. And, and though he was brought to the club as part of that project, you can see from the, the sort of players they're targeting this summer that Ancelotti may not be completely on board with that. And you can kind of understand that from a manager's point of view. He wants success now. He wants people he knows. He wants experienced characters to take the club forward. But from a, from a business perspective, it's probably not great business to be signing 29-year-olds who, who haven't played in, in, in this country before and, and won't have great sell-on value and, and won't be with the club in five, six, seven years' time, you know? So there's probably some, some tension there. Um, it's whether the two of them can work together to, to realise that long-term strategy, really. I, I think you'll see Everton continue to, to focus on, on youth. And if you speak to agents, they all say that, the plan there is is that Brands wants to bring in, you know, as, as many promising young kids from all over Europe as as possible. That that is still the brief. But the other side of it is, agents will also tell you that if they want to get something done, they go and speak to Mashiri. And if Mashiri likes the sound of of a player or or is dazzled by a name, he will try to make that happen, regardless of the long term plan that was agreed by the club. So it's a bit messy, perhaps, in, in, in that respect, I think, a bit muddled. Mm. How much, I mean, given your, your uh, London base, how, 
how much of this, a lot of people talk about the relationship that Mishiri has with, with certain agents, and you're very happy to mention them by name. How, how influenced are, or how much influence do they have with, with Mishiri? I think he listens to his favourites um, quite a lot, as many owners. And those, those favourites being? Well, obviously, Kia Jirabshin is, um, is, is one of them. Um, yeah. There are others as well, but um, I think people like to, to point at Kia as a, a big influence in the club, but I think perhaps he's, he's not actually quite as big an influence as he would like to, to make out. He's been involved in, in some of the deals the club have done, but you can see from the the range of agents that Bashiri's had to deal with that he's not really relying on, on just one or two, like, like some other club owners do. So I don't really see that there's a big problem there in, in Everton, you know, having, having players pushed towards them by friends of Mashiri, if, if you like, I, I think a bigger, a bigger issue is Mashiri turning up at the end of a transfer window with an idea and saying, go and get me him or, or hearing from someone that a, a big, a bigger name player is suddenly on the market and deciding that that's exactly what they want. I think, you know, that, that, that perhaps is not, was not quite part of the plan that, that was supposed to be put in place. And, and that kind of meddling is not always a good thing. Mm. It's been said, um, and I'm sure you've, you've heard this, uh, that Mishiri can be quite easily influenced. Um, and possibly sometimes the, he makes decisions based on the last opinion that he, hear, he hears. Is that an unfair characteristic? It's not something I've heard about him. I have to admit. I mean, right. I've heard I've heard it from people on 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 here, perhaps, but it's not something that people outside of of that have expressed to me. Um, he's quite opinionated in his own right, and and he's. Um, he, I think he can go from one extreme to another sometimes from, from what I'm, from what I'm told, but I don't think that's a, such a, a big criticism of his. I think a, a bigger criticism really is the fact that he's so willing to delegate responsibility to others. He spent so much money on, on this football club, but he's still letting all the, the day-to-day decisions be made by other people. And you hear different things about him from, from different sources. Some people say he's semi-retired and, and enjoying his time um, away from many of his business interests, but other people say he's still fiercely in, in involved in the club and, and wants it to be a success. So, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to know, really. One person who knows him quite well once told me that, um, and this is quite quite instructive, I guess, of, of the guy's personality, that if, if you go to him and say, um, Farhad, I need a million from a business. Would you be interested in, in investing? He'd laugh at you and say, I won't even take you seriously unless, you're, unless you ask for 10. Now, obviously, in, in a transfer window, that's not the best way to operate, but it, it shows um, a kind of mindset, if you like. There's, there's a, a sort of ambition and a confidence behind him. And, and he is, people question it, but he is a man who's, who's wealthy in, in his own right. He owns an island in the Maldives and he's building hundreds of millions of pounds worth of, of hotels there. He once paid for Roger Federer to give his, his niece tennis lessons. He's a man who means business. Um, I think a lot of Everton fans would just like to see him around the club a bit more on a day-to-day basis to show that he's still engaged with every decision. I think that's, that's the thing that probably disappoints people a little. Exactly. And, and, and the biggest difficulty is that people recognise that he, ha- he is a success and that he obviously made Usmanov's business more successful than it might have been, or he, he, he you know, formed a part of that. 
So he, he clearly has ambition. He clearly has a lot of business skills. Otherwise, how could he become a self-made billionaire? Yet many of those attributes uh, haven't yet been seen at Goodison Park. No, and, and that's where perhaps you'd like to see him take on a bit more of a, a, a hands-on role. But, you know, some, some people do say that if you look at it in, in the whole, despite the, the huge financial outlay he's had to, to shell out on the club, that essentially it's still, it's still peanuts to him because it's a very small part of a, a much larger overall portfolio of his. And, you know, the, the, the bigger things he's, he's involved with are, are, are deals in, in his telecoms and, and metals businesses in, in Russia and, and other places. So, you know, how often Everton really comes across his radar is, is debatable perhaps, you know, and I, I think fans of any club would just like to see an owner be much more hands-on and, and take more of a, an interest perhaps. Or perhaps adopt the model, say that Tottenham have adopted where, you know, they've given the responsibility, albeit um, the chairman and CEO has a large uh, ownership in it himself, but they've given him the responsibility and the autonomy to act. So Joe Lewis, for example, doesn't get involved in hardly anything with regards to Tottenham. Uh, you know, certainly wouldn't get involved in transfers, for example. Um, he, and, and he leaves that you know, very clearly to the executives that he employs. The, the, the difficulty I have is that, you know, and if I look at this from a business perspective, you have a shareholder who occasionally dips in and out of the business. Maybe sometimes his strategy changes because he's taken a different view from the view that he had last time. But you don't have a group of executives. You don't have a chairman um, that's sort of you know, doing stuff day to day that are able to take the responsibility themselves or are able to do things differently from how they used to do it at, mm. at a time when they didn't have any money or had relatively little money. Well, this is why I think promoting brands to the position that, that he has now was, was very important. But I'd like to see some evidence that um, he is being given carte blanche to kind of run the club and, and take it in the direction that, that was agreed when he came in. Because whatever you think of him, he is still very high, highly regarded all, all the way across Europe. And I think if he's given the time and, and backing to do what, what he was billed to do when he came in. I think that could be a very successful project, but it, it does require the, the time and backing. And perhaps there are elements at, at Everton at the moment um, that are not all pulling in, in quite the same direction, um, which can be a bit frustrating. And the only person ultimately who can sort that out is, is Mishiri. But I, I find one of the things about him is he gets very excited about certain things and then, Five minutes later, we'll, we'll abandon them or, or forget all about them. Um, I'll give you one example. I was, I was told, this was way back in 2017, I think, um, he had very ambitious plans for, for the academy and he was talking to a, um, a very experienced neuroscientist about um, doing a, a big research project with the club, which was all about... Um, improving decision-making and passing accuracy and, and speed of thought amongst the young players at the club. Yep. It's quite an innovative project. And, and this guy had worked with teams like Bayern Munich and, and PSV um, and had, had some success there. And it was supposed to be this, this big grand project. Research was going to happen first, and then it was going to help them produce the, the best players, not just in the, the North of England, but in the, in the whole country. 
and it was supposed to be a way of um, providing a more kind of objective evidence-based decision-making process so the club wasn't relying too much on the opinion of one or, or two coaches on on a player and, and picking you know potential in, in a, seeing potential in a player but it, for whatever reason it, it never got off the ground and this was back in the days of, of Peter Vin, who was very keen on it when he left that was the last I heard of it and it's, it's never been resurrected since and you think well that that was something that he was apparently very excited about and, and willing to to back, but it didn't happen. And it, I think that's kind of illustrative a little bit of, of Mashiri's mindset at times, how, how engaged is he and, and can you keep his mind on, on one thing and focus on it for long enough? I, suppose, I mean, it is a characteristic of, of people like Mashiri, I suppose, that they have very short attention spans. Yeah. Um, and, well, and, and unless they think... Um, this is a long-term strategic move. If they think it's like a tactical move, which is what that would have been, if it doesn't immediately produce results or if there's a delay or whatever, they tend to sort of just put it to one side and, and, and move on to something else. I think I, I certainly have got experience of other people that have done that in the past. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not particularly surprised um, by that. Um, I suppose my, my biggest surprise, and I've talked about this on many of the podcasts that I do, is that he hasn't really addressed the the, the management issues w- w- within the club, um, and I, I still struggle with that as to whether or not you know he's been uh, unduly influenced by Bill Kenwright and you know Bill's sold him such a story about how well run the club is uh, that he's never addressed, never felt the need to address those issues because he still has trust in Bill's judgment. Um, or for another reason, but then I can't think of another. I can't logically think of another reason. To be quite honest, it might just be from his point of view that he finds those things that the day-to-day running of a business like that just quite boring and doesn't mm. really want to get involved in them because he he wants other people to do that part of it for him. Uh, absolutely, I, I I get the point about him wanting other people to do it, but there is also a point where any business owner turns around and says, "Actually, have I got the right people doing the job that I want them to do?" Yeah, and that's no, the question. No. And, and that's the question that hasn't really been. I personally, I, I don't think has been addressed. Um, you know, at board and at, at an exec- executive level, and even when he's made the changes at board level, for example, he bought <laughs> some somebody um, that I know you know quite well in, 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 into the board as uh, as deputy chairman. That didn't work out very well. Mm. No, there have been a lot of, of bad decisions like that. And yeah, I mean, you know, for people who don't realise who I'm talking about, talk about obviously talking, talking about Keith Harris. Keith yeah. was supposed to come in on the back of his uh, experience at Wembley Stadium in terms of stadium development and drive through um, Bramley Moor. Now, clearly that didn't work in the manner in which uh, Keith had promised because he's no longer there. But you don't have to dig too deep into sort of Keith's background in order to understand that perhaps there's an awful lot of projects out there that haven't quite gone the way that they should have done because of his involvement. I'm going to put it that way. Um, and it sort of questions, why, why, why would you bring somebody like that into the business? Surely a man of Mishiri's means and expertise, uh, range of contact, contacts, etc., would go beyond you know, what perhaps might be a, a very obvious choice to find somebody who's you know, better qualified and better suitable for the task at hand. 
yeah, again, that probably comes down to to being too willing to to delegate to others, I guess, in in that decision making process. But in in Mashiri's defence, at least he's realised that where there's a problem, you know, he's had to resolve it. I mean, Keith Harris is no longer there for for a reason, and um, neither is the the guy who, who used to be described as the loser from Leicester, who kind of ruined our our transfer policy for um, quite a few years. Um, so I think when, when there have been issues, he has moved to, to fix them. Well, that's certainly the case. I mean, in terms of managers, that's certainly been the case. Mm. You know, he's not been he's not been shy about getting getting rid of, rid of managers. The issue has always been the people that he's recruited. Yeah, you know, from 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 day issues. from day one. One of the issues with the the manager thing is that Everton still kind of lurch from one extreme to another and you, you kind of wonder if Mashiri should just let brands put the identity of the club in place first or what, what are Everton you know what, what do they want to be because you can lurch from you know a, a softly softly possession type manager like Martinez to you know, the, the complete opposite in terms of pragmatism and ruthlessness in, in Coombe. And, and then, you know, every, every time something doesn't work, you rip it up and, and start again. But surely Everton needs to have an identity before they decide which manager to choose and in, in which direction to go. Leicester are a counter-attacking team who play a certain way. Liverpool are about the gig and press. City are a possession team. What, what are Everton? They need to decide what team, what, what kind of... Um, style of play they want to focus on and, and what formation suits the squad and then you pick a manager around that and get all the age groups playing in the same way so that everything feeds into the first team and as soon as someone goes down in the first team you have a ready-made replacement to come in because the age group below plays in exactly the, the same way but at the moment Everton go from one extreme to another because Mashiri decides that one manager hasn't worked, so he tears it up and starts again and, and goes for the opposite. And that's probably not really a very... Um, there's no long-term thinking in that. I'm, I'm sure Brands doesn't want the club to, to behave like that, and, and hopefully it, it won't in, in the future. But I suppose that takes you on to one of the issues with, with Ancelotti. Um, Ancelotti's a great manager, hugely experienced, and he's obviously able to attract a kind of name of player that Everton wouldn't normally have been able to attract in, in recent years. But he's also quite a reactive manager. He's someone who's very good at, at finding little tactical tweaks to stop other teams playing or um, you know, un- undermine another manager's style of play to get a result. Um, but is he someone who, who would put a, a long-term plan like that in place? I think those, those are where the, the questions come in and do Everton need something a bit more overarching than just to rely on on Ancelotti for success do they need the identity first so that you know at at some point when Ancelotti is no longer there anymore that the next manager comes in and feeds into the same philosophy is Ancelotti someone who's going to give them that philosophy I think those questions still need to be asked there's no reason why he couldn't and I'm sure it's it's an exciting thing for for him to try and do because it's not really something he's done in his career before but the questions still need to be asked. Is that happening? And, and what is the philosophy and the identity of the club going forward? And, and who's in charge of, of putting all that in place? Yeah, absolutely. But again, you know, this is part of the issue, isn't it? If, 
six months ago, if we'd been having this conversation, we'd probably say we'd probably be able to say, well, clearly Angelotti's come in with a sort of four-year plan in mind because you know, he's got four and a half-year contract, um, and he's going to work with brands, and maybe you know there will be some progress, but the progress will be gradual. Whereas now, in a post, sort of, almost as if the sort of the the, the post-COVID environment has changed has changed things and um, maybe accelerated Angelotti's thinking. Maybe he's looking at what we've got and thinking, actually, there's so much work that needs doing with this that I, even though he's talked about evolution, um, we're almost moving towards a bit of revolution here. In Maybe. terms of the transfer targets, because yeah. it, it is a, you know, to me it seems like a, like a, a last roll of the dice. Well, maybe, yeah, from a financial point of view, certainly the last the last roll of a dice. It's, it's clearly, if Angelotti stays the four years, it's not the last roll of his dice. Mm. Given where the club is financially, given the finances that surround football generally, it seems to me like we are. You know, we're putting everything on black, or we're putting everything on red. Whatever, we, we you know, we, just, we wouldn't put it on red clearly. But you know, you, you know, the, you know the point I'm making. Yeah, they're still spending money they 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 haven't got essentially, and, and relying on subsidy from a from a rich owner, which which can't go on forever, and isn't really a a recipe for for long term success. Um, I think if you'd asked Ancelotti when he first came in what he wanted long term in, in terms of players he probably would have mentioned probably the same names that you know might come in this this window so whether um he was ever fully on board with a strategy of, of trying to promote youth players and you know bring bring in promising youngsters from abroad i'm not sure i think there has to be a balance um and i'm pretty sure from from day one he, he knew exactly the kind of player he wanted and people like Alan and, and Hammers Rodriguez would have been very high on his, on his wish list. So if those are both realized, great. Um, financially, they're probably not the, the best in investments in the world. And I'm interested to see how they'll structure a deal for Hammers, who, whose wages are notoriously high and for whom Real Madrid want quite a high fee considering he's in the, the last year of his contract. But I think they both obviously improved the quality of the team massively. So in the short term, if he can make it work, it will pay off. It, it's the long term that, that you worry about for the club. Indeed. You, you mentioned an, an interesting point there, which I did want to bring up at some point with you. And that's um, the, the, fund, the funding of the football club. You, you did say earlier in, in this conversation that from your perspective, what Mishiri's put into the club so far is a relatively small part of his overall portfolio. Okay. Mm. Um, there's always a lot of talk about Usmanov's involvement. What, what's, what's your view on that? Um, it's a, a story that will, that will never go away. Um, there are some people, predominantly in, in banking circles, who remain convinced that he's some kind of secret power behind the club. I don't personally subscribe to that view, as as you know. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make a, a whole lot of, of logical sense. And whenever you speak to anyone close to either of them, um, either Mashiri or, or Usmanov, they both 
continually stress in, in the strongest terms that Everton is regarded as, as Mashiri's baby. And this is something that he's always wanted to make work on his own, which is probably why Usmanov keeps talking about how he, he'd always be willing to help his friend out. But that, that's a very kind of cagey and, and limited um, phrase to use, I think. The fact, fact remains, really, there's nothing to stop Usmanov coming in apart from Mashiri. So if he wanted to to own Everton or, you know, to, to run the club, there's no reason for him to do it in the shadows. He could just come and do it. There's no reason for him, you know, to, to stop. I think that the only reason is that the Mashiri does want to run Everton as his. Everton is his baby and he wants to make it a success on his own. Um, some people might not want to believe that, but I can't. I don't see any reason to disbelieve it at the moment. Certainly, there's a lot of people who don't want to believe that. Um, I know from my own own experience because I've you know consistently said that um, he's not involved to the extent that people think he's involved, um, which I think is first of all true. But I think also there's a lot of evidence uh, to to back that up. Um, now, once he sold his Arsenal shares, if he wanted to be involved, as you say, there's absolutely nothing. Um, to stop him from being involved. And I just don't think that the club would be run in the manner that it is run. It would, wouldn't be funded in the way that it is funded in terms of you know, using external debt providers. The stadium wouldn't be in the position that it's in if there was you know, two multi-billionaires involved in the club as against one multi-billionaire. Um, and that, to me, is the biggest indicator of why he's not as involved as other people say. I also think it's very disingenuous towards Mashiri himself to suggest that um, Usmanov is involved. Very much so, yeah. Um, you know, I, regardless of what views you may have as, as to his management style and as to you know, how he's run the club, the fact remains he's the fourth largest benefactor in English football. Yeah. Um. um and that can't be taken from my perspective that that can't be taken away from him no no I, I completely agree with that there's also the the geopolitical side of it to to think about in that Usmanov is quite close to the um um well he's very close to Putin yeah <laughs> um, I mean, I, yeah that's a, that's a statement of fact yeah and, and Russian oligarchs have been basically told to repatriate wealth back into to Russia, which Usmanov has, has been doing. Now, there, there are lots of people in football who will tell you that Usmanov is on the lookout for a football club. And I'm quite sure that at some point he will end up investing in, in a big way in another team. Um, his people have always consistently said that if that were to happen, he would lean towards or, or favour trying to get into a, a traditionally big name club um that's already established at, at UEFA's top table so you know we, we're talking about a kind of a, a ready-made Champions League giant if you like rather than putting his money back into into English football especially so there are there are clubs in Europe that I'm sure Usmanov has, has looked at and will continue to look at but yeah an AC Milan or somebody of that nature yeah yeah there, there were links there before and that one makes a, a lot of sense but I think it would take the right opportunity and, and it would it would be some it would be somewhere where he could be completely the the hundred percent you know, the guy, the man running a club like that. I think I think he, he, he wants something 
of that kind of level, um, which is another reason to think that perhaps right now, Everton is not, not the kind of club that he's probably looking for. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. I mean, you, you, you'd, you'd want him to sort of compete on the same levels, for example, as Abramovich. You wouldn't expect him to be competing lower than that. From, from 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 my perspective, and actually Abramovich is an int- he's in- interesting, isn't he? Because Chelsea are currently very active in the transfer market, and I've always held the same view that you've held in terms of geopolitically or geopolitically held the view that in the last sort of two or three years, the Russians have obviously rep- repatriated a lot of money back into Moscow, money that was held in London. But Abramovich has sort of booked the trend on that, hasn't he? It's, you know, it's, it's known that he's not been in the UK now for, what is it, more than 18, 18 months, possibly even two yeah. years. But he certainly continues to put his money where his mouth is in terms of Chelsea. He, he put in, was it, 200, $247 million last year. So his commitment is still there. It's a surprise to me, at least. It may not be to everyone. Um, there was a lot of talk that Chelsea... Um, that he was dipping his toe in the water for a sale of Chelsea and that the fact that he, he rarely goes to games anymore was a sign that he's, he's not really so engaged. But um, I think putting someone who's so close to him in Lampard in there and, and bringing Czech back to the club might have been a sign in, in the other direction that he's still quite in, engaged with the club. The level of spending, I think, has come as a surprise to everyone. Um Partly that's because he's seen a, a window of opportunity in, in COVID when prices have come down around the transfer market and other clubs don't have as much disposable income. He's seen a window to compete. Um, the flip side of that is, you know, the, the stadium project was was put on hold. So, you know, the, the, the bricks, the, the investment in, in bricks and mortar that Chelsea are expecting hasn't happened. And, and did Putin have an influence on that? Quite Quite possibly. Um, on on the pitch though he, he certainly seems to be wanting to have another go he, there's, there's been a few windows obviously where Chelsea haven't been able to sign players because of the, the ban so that money from people like Hazard and, and Morata has, has just been sitting there and over the last few years you, you couldn't really point to a, a major marquee signing from Chelsea which people took as another indication maybe that Abramovich wasn't so keen on trying to compete at the top table. I'd, I'd heard people say that um, you look at what's happened at, at City and, and how far Liverpool had gone ahead of them and you think, well, how much more does a Bramwich need to spend to compete with that? Is it going to take another billion pounds of investment to, to get back to that kind of level? But he, he does suddenly seem to be going back in that direction. So... I think Chelsea are going to be one to, to watch this season. But for people who just see the, the numbers and think, how is he doing that? There is the, the money from Hazard. There is the money from Morata. And there will be a lot of, of sales at Chelsea. So, you know, we, we talk about net spends quite a lot. But, but Chelsea will make a lot of that money back and have already paid for a lot of their spending by past sales. Yeah. And, and obviously, from a financial fair play point of view, um, that, that that's very important to them. But you know, my understanding, and I haven't looked at it in massive detail, is that you know they they will be compliant as long as they continue with the you know the player trading, which is you know a clear part of their business strategy anyway. Yeah, they have such a, a huge loan army and have invested in in so many 
young players that there will always be, you know, players they can sell, players who your average fan probably wouldn't know much about. But there, there are so many assets at, at Chelsea that they will always make a, a regular income from selling players. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting model. The, the other team that seems to be going through a lot of change at the moment in, in London is, is Arsenal. Mm. Um, Very much so, yeah. You, you cover them. What's, what, what's, the, what's the major points about you know, the changes um, perhaps in the, in, the, in the last six months, both uh, on the board uh, in terms of the uh, football management structure and obviously Arteta coming in as well? Well, I look at I look at Arsenal quite closely because I, I think of them in terms of league position and, and what they've done over the last few years as as quite a close rival to Everton, really. Yep. Um, and, and it's interesting that Arsenal at, at one point really wanted Ancelotti to come in many years ago, um, and that Ancelotti is now at Everton, and that Everton had looked at Arteta, but he wanted to go to Arsenal, and they and they got him so it's interesting to compare the two managers as well and, and the styles of play um, on the pitch I think there's room to improve for, for both clubs and which which manager ends up being the more successful is open to to debate but off the pitch there are just as many problems really at, at Arsenal as, as there are I think at, at Everton there's a, a, a slightly con- confused um, backroom structure um, the fact that that Raul Sanlehi has left means that um, they're they're basically in in the hands of a, a very well meaning but but not particularly football orientated administrator again, and there seems to be a bit of a disconnect between what the club is doing and the the outward face that it, it puts on things. I, I sit in a lot of press conferences listening to Arteta talking about how all his players have a, a clean slate and they're, they're all, um, they're all available. They're, they're all in his good books. You know, no, no one's out, no one's completely out of the running for a, for a squad place. And then, you know, you, you talk to agents and you see what, what the club are actually doing in the, in the transfer market. And, and half the players you ask him about seem to be for sale. So either that's, that's Arteta just trying to pay lip service to, you know, what, what, what he thinks of, of certain players and, and protect transfer values and, and all the rest of it, or, or there's, there's something a bit more disconnected going on there. I, I'm not entirely sure what, what the, the answer is, but in, in the same way that Chelsea are trying to sell a lot of players, Arsenal have a lot of players to get rid of as well. Sure. And they don't have as much disposable income to, to spend on signing. So they've had to do things in, in a slightly different way, but, Again, in a similar way to what Everton might do in, in this window, they've, they've made a lot of signings that don't make a huge deal of long-term financial sense. And I think signings like William, for instance, who I still think is, is a great player and has a lot left in, in the tank, are just not something the club would have done under, under the Wenger regime. It wouldn't have made financial sense to give him the contract or the, the wages that they did at his age. Um, but Arteta's got his way on that. And, you know, we'll have to see whether that turns out to be a success. But in terms of, in a similar way to Everton, in the short term, it will make, it will make the club better. So I think there's comparisons to draw there. And it would be interesting to see which club finishes higher in, in the table this season because they're essentially competing at the same 
in the same part of the league, the same mini table just below the top clubs, I think. Yeah, there is an interesting parallel, isn't there? Because, you know, if we bring in, in a Rodriguez, if you bring in Alan, we are more likely to qualify for the Europa League than we would be, uh, obviously, without bringing them in. So mm. you, can see, you can see where the argument is if we bring them in. There's an immediate return on investment because, you know, we go, let's say we go up six or seven places in the league, which we'd have to in order to qualify for the Europa League. Well, that's worth, you know, 10, 12 million pound a year. And if we get into the Euro, Europa League, that's worth at least 15 million pound. And if we get through the group stages, it could be worth anything up to 30 or 40 million pound if we, if, you know, extended it all the way through to the final. Equally, equally with Arsenal, um, you know, making an investment in somebody like William sort of makes them more, more certain to be in the Europa League. So you, you can sort of tick that box. Um, but it also probably makes them a stronger challenger for um, a Champions League place. Yeah, I mean, Arteta said a couple of weeks ago to us that it's, it's fundamental for the clubs, for Arsenal's future to be in the Champions League. Not, not just to get back in it, but to be in it every season. That, that's the ambition at, at Arsenal. That's where they need to be. They, they're losing a lot of money every season from not being where they had been for 16 years or whatever it was in, in a row. So, you know, I think they're, they're desperate to, to bridge that gap and get back in there as, as a first step back to success. Um, and especially in an environment where they don't have any fans in the stadium because for, for yeah. Arsenal in particular, you know... Um, not having the stadium full, not having all the corporate entertain, entertainment areas full, you know, it's, it's costing them a hundred million pound a year. Yeah, yeah, quite right. They've been a club that, that's relied a little more on match day revenue than than some others since they they built the stadium. And whilst most clubs don't really rely on it to the same extent that they used to in in previous years, there is still that that element to to think about and, and consider. And it's essentially why the players were asked to take wage cuts and Arsenal decided to make staff redundant because it's that day-to-day revenue that that the club needs to cover, basically. So I think think there is a comparison between the two clubs and it'll be very interesting to see how they get on in the league this season because personally, I, I don't think there's any reason why Everton can't finish in a European spot this year. The, the clubs around them, whether they strengthen or not, I don't think are, are that far removed from, from Everton. And I think that's that's the kind of ambition that the club needs to have. I think Alan and Hammers both make Everton stronger and hopefully um, raise the level of, of the other players in, in the squad too. I know Everton thought their squad was good enough last season to finish sixth, uh, which may have been you know, and over, they may have been a little foolish in thinking that it was because a lot of people didn't agree. Um, but I certainly think if those two players do come in, there's no reason why this squad can't finish sixth when you look around around at the rest of the league. Sorry, Paul. If you, if you, if you recall um, 12 months ago, you and I were talking about um, internal predictions at Everton that said 75, 74 points, I think it was, 75 points mm-hmm. um, for last season. Well, we got about two-thirds of the way there, so <laughs> we, we, we were way short. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, you know, I mean, the, the, the performance really was pretty pathetic, wasn't it? But obviously most of that was down to the previous manager rather than Ancelotti, and, and he's shown, I think, in, in the brief window that he's had that he can get results against even the bigger clubs. 
clubs. Um, whether he can do that over a full season and get them into sixth, who knows? But I think if those two players do come in, the squad is good enough to do it. So that there will be, it brings a little bit, a little bit more pressure, I think, on, on Ancelotti to deliver that because I think that's where Everton should be, and, and certainly it should be what they're aiming, what they're aiming for. I'm very interested to see how James fits in at Everton. I can remember being at the World Cup in, in Brazil and, and watching every game and, and thinking, wow, this, this is the next, the next big thing I'm, I'm watching. You know, I famously missed the, um, the amazing goal he scored when he chest <laughs> down and, and wallops it up corner from 30 yards out because I was busy rattling out a, a runner with my head down on my laptop and was only aware when the rest of the press box erupted around me. And what, what, what happened? Um, but that whole tournament, you know, you, you could argue really was, was his. He, I think he was top scorer, wasn't he, at, yep. at that World Cup? And it's not as if he's, he's failed miserably in the places that he's, he's been since. He's been, you know, he's been quite successful both at, at Madrid and, and Bayern Munich at times. It just hasn't been a consistently good run for him. And, and unfortunately, he's, he's slipped completely off the radar of, of the manager at, at Real Madrid, who just wants his, his wages gone now. Um, there's there's risks involved in it because he's he's twice suffered knee ligament injuries in in the last two years. Um, he didn't miss you know huge amounts of time with with either one, but there is a, a concern there. He's never been the, the quickest player in the world, um, but in terms of vision and, and talent and and confidence, he's potentially a, a game changer for Everton, who, who could certainly raise the level of, of the players around him. I just wonder where, where he plays because mm-hmm. um, Ancelotti, even Ancelotti has used him in a, in a variety of roles before. I can remember at the, at the World Cup with Colombia, he thrived on, on, being, on being the go-to guy, the man, you know, playing as a, a 10 and everything running through him. That seems to be the kind of role that he enjoys the best and brings the best out of him. But to do that at Everton would require quite a big change in in everything Ancelotti said so far. He's always said he likes a certain way of lining up, and he hasn't really played with a ten at all. Does he do that now? I don't know. There might be games when he does use him as, as a ten, but it seems to me that having briefed for so long as a club that they were looking for a left-footed right winger. Yeah. And finally, it seems bringing one in, in, in Hammett, that he's going to start on the right wing. I could be wrong, but that, that's, that's just my, my sense of, of what he will do. And he could be just as exciting and dynamic there too. But I can remember the best football he's ever played, Hammett, came as a 10 when he was required to be the man to make things happen and everything moved through him. So it'll be interesting to see how Ancelotti deals with that and how he fits that into his team. Yeah, well, I suppose if he played as a ten, what 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 would that do for Sigurdsson? Well, he wouldn't be in the team, would he? Yeah, I, I, he I still, <laughs> it's debatable what what Everton's midfield looks like next season. Um, we, we can't be sure that Decore will will come in as well. I have my doubts about that in terms of the the spending and, and the need. Really, um, what, what's your view on on him as a player? Um. I don't see that he provides Everton with much more than they've already got personally. I don't see a natural balance um, in that midfield if, if it includes Decore as a starter. So I wonder whether the, the spending 
is worth it. Um, possibly if you played a three or a diamond, it might work better. You could have a, a more kind of, um, you could have a sitter like Gomez receiving the ball from the back four, playing as the holding player um, and setting up the play. And you could have both Allen and, and Decore as kind of box-to-box players either side of him mm-hmm. because Decore does at least give you some value in terms of tackles and interceptions and he's got legs. Um, but I don't see that if you buy Allen, you can really play. You can. I, I don't see that Decore fits in the midfield of just him and Allen. I think Everton need a distributor at the base of that, which for me is Gomez. I know he's tried Sigurdsson there as well, but it doesn't, it just doesn't seem to, to work for him. I don't think he's naturally suited to that at all. Um, so for, for me, the natural balance in, in a two is, is Gomez um, and Allen. And, and that doesn't leave a place really for, for Decore. And if you want to play Hamez as, as a 10, you can't play Decore in a similar part of the field. So I have my doubts whether that one will happen personally, but we'll see. There was um, obviously I'm some distance away, but there was uh, some a little rumor last week that um, Fulham were interested in, uh, you know, in, in our Icelandic friend. Um, I think that would be hugely difficult for for Fulham to pull off, um, and I don't really hear any any whispers that the Gilfrey's about to leave Everton, right? Which will probably disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> quite a big section of the fan base um it's a strange one what's happened to to Gilfie because in theory it, it should have been a good a good move but it hasn't worked out really for whatever reason and Ancelotti's tried to change him and play him in, in a slightly different role but I don't really see I haven't seen a single game yet that Gilfie's played in that role where he's really excelled or looks comfortable or naturally suited to it. So I think he might, I think his future has to be in doubt because if they're signing Allen and especially if they sign um, Hamez and, and Decore as well, it, it's going to limit where Gilfie gets into that team. It's, it's just, you know, the the age, the fee they paid, the wages, it's not, not an easy one to, to move on, really. And where where would he want to go, I, I wonder, too. I still think there's a few seasons, a few good seasons left of, of Gilfie Sigurdsson somewhere. Just not sure what, what he is. Maybe, maybe if he is a 10, he needs the right kind of centre-forward ahead of him. But I've ne- of, all the, of all the strikers Everton have played in front of Gilfie Sigurdsson, he's never really hit off with any of them. He's never had a, a great relationship in terms of passes and, and assists to any kind of striker. So maybe he's just not really a number 10. People in Iceland will, will tell you that he is or that he's more of an attacking, attacking eight. But there have been times that there were times when he, when he first signed when he looked a really good player and, and that he could go on to be you know, the best player in, in Everton's team, but it just hasn't worked out for him. And I don't think he's got a future at the club anymore. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you know, he, he clearly looked a, a very good player um, when he was at Swansea, uh, which is obviously the reason the reason why we bought him. I, I, I just thought that, you know, Fulham might appear to be a reasonable fit for him, both uh, particularly in terms of uh, the size of the club, the fact that they're, you know, they're obviously coming out, out of the championship, so they want people with Premier League experience. Um, I'm just doing my pitch here to try and sell him. 
can't, can't I suppose, see. personally, I can't see that one. But right, you, okay. Never know. Um, doesn't leave an awful lot of space neither, assuming that these um, transfers go through for Bernard, does it? No. And has he really shown that he deserves to be to be in that team? Um, he's capable of, of little flashes of, of brilliance, but I did wonder even when, when he came in about him, um, I can remember being asked by, by West Ham fans when he was first linked with them, I think well, well before we ever came in for him actually, uh, what I thought of him. And I, I remember telling them, I wondered at the time, was, was it the system that, 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 met, that allowed him to thrive when he was playing for, for Fonseca? Um, or was it the player? I, I just kind of thought, does he really suit the Premier League? in terms of the stature and the, the physique and the way, the style he plays. He's capable of doing great things and he's, he's fun to watch. But I don't really see a place for him in the Everton team at the moment. And, and as, you know, as a sellable asset, he's quite, he'd make a difference to the, to the profit and loss if they were able to realise a, a profit for him, which they obviously would if he was sold. So, I think he's another one that the club really could do with moving on. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. What's, what, what's your view um, on Pickford? Um, I think he's had an absolutely horrendous season and would be lucky to, to stay as um, England's number one. And I can remember speaking to him a couple of times in, in mix zones after games over the last 12, 18 months and asking him kind of politely <laughs> about his form. And he's always very, very, very aggressive about it. Um, whether he admits to himself that he's lost a bit of, of something, that, that his form has, has suffered this season, I don't know. But in public, he will certainly tell you quite vehemently that he still thinks he's a great keeper and he's performing very well. And I think that, when you hear him say that, it, it kind of opens your eyes a little bit. He's an incredibly confident guy. I think he's an incredibly good goalkeeper at certain parts of his game. There probably isn't a better goalkeeper with his feet um, in terms of English goalkeepers in the league still. And, and that is, is important both to Ancelotti in, in terms of the way he wants to invite the press and, and play out and probably more importantly for, for Southgate with England, who doesn't trust his other keepers in, in quite the same way. And I think the thing, the thing with Pickford, it, he also has a, a knack for making the big save at, at the right time, which not all keepers do. It's just that little mistakes have started creeping into his game and he's been responsible for a lot of goals last season that, that shouldn't really be happening from someone of his stature. So I think he needs to... He needs a reset, really. There are, there are shades of Joe Hart creeping in. And, and Joe Hart, I know he's just signed for, for Tottenham as a backup, but it's essentially disappeared when, you know, he started to believe his own hype a little bit and became too confident for his own good. I think that's the danger with Pickford. Some, some of the big errors, you could say, maybe come from overconfidence and, and trying to, to do things that, you know, a keeper thinking in more simple terms would just have dealt with uh, and got over with. He's played himself into trouble at times, you know. Yeah, he seems, um, from my perspective, uh, slightly frenetic, which is not what you yeah. want from a goalkeeper. And as you say, um, you know, mistakes slipped into his game. Not not only did he concede goals that he shouldn't have conceded, 
but there were quite a few errors that almost led to a goal, but then, you know, sort of uh, Michael Keane being on, on the goal line to, to, to save something, you know, that went through his hands, etc. Um, it, it suggested to some, that somebody was not um, mentally on top of their own game. 100%, yeah. I, I think exactly the same thing. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned Michael Keane because I'd like to see the same sort of ba- uh, bounce-back season from, from Pickford that, that Keane's had because Keane had, had problems that are, you know he's, he's gone into himself in terms of the mental side of his game. And I'm not suggesting that, that Pickford has those kind of, of issues, but I do think that there's something there that, that needs to be addressed. Um, and there's no reason why... Pickford can't have the same sort of bounce back season that Michael Keane's had. I, I still think Michael Keane's a great defender, playing in the right, the right setup with the right players around him in a team that suits him. He, he's an England player for me. Yeah. And I, I think exactly the same applies to Pickford. If he, if he gets himself switched on and right, there's no reason why he can't go back to being what he was before, which was the best keeper in England in terms of England goalkeepers. I, I, get, the, I get the impression. I mean, Keane, obviously Everton now extended his contract. Uh, I get the impression that Angelotti has sort of given, obviously given him the vote of confidence. Um, I don't get the feeling that um, you know, uh, our goalkeepers had the same vote of confidence yet from, from Angelotti. No, it, it does feel like Angelotti might have some doubts there, but I don't think Pitford is going anywhere. Um, you don't think there's any credibility in, in the Romero? Um, talks quite possibly that's that's not one that's come across my radar I have to admit right um, but but I wouldn't think that if they do that it's uh, to replace Pickford I think Pickford needs someone who can genuinely challenge him to keep him on his toes and, and force him you know force a bit of form back into him if you like and, and Ramiro could probably do that I think that the understudy keepers that he's had have been nowhere near good enough to put him under any pressure at all and you know sometimes as a goalkeeper you can live on easy street a little bit knowing that you're always going to play so I think if they brought someone in like that it would be a good move in in trying to get the best out out of Pickford but I don't think as a club whatever Ancelotti thinks of him he's likely to be to be sold anytime soon I just can't see that happening and you would have to wonder as well after the season he's just had what kind of clubs would want him Hmm. Yeah, he, in a sense, he's damaged goods, isn't he? Um, he needs to re-establish himself. Um, I think he needs to re-establish himself, particularly at club level, <clears throat> to show that he can play you know, 40 games in a season and have 38 very good games out of the 40, which is effectively what you're looking for, isn't it, from a goalkeeper? Yeah. You have to remember as well that for all the, the, the mistakes and the... You know the oddities in his game. As I said before, he's very, very important in terms of the way Ancelotti wants to play out from the back. If, yep. if you watch how Arsenal did it against City, they were right on the edge at times, taking all sorts of risks. And Ancelotti's probably a little less risk averse than that. But essentially, he wants to play in the same way. And Pickford, with the ball at his feet, is still brilliant at that. I think they would struggle to find another keeper who who can play that way on the market. So I think he, for all the mistakes and, and the, the bad sides of his game, he's going to be very important for Ancelotti, whatever, whatever doubts the manager might, might have about him. It, 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 that side of his game is vital to the club. That's yeah, interesting. Have you, have you ever met a, a football fan 
who actually likes this playing out from the six yard line? No, not really. <laughs> my, my my heart is always in my mouth. Yeah, <laughs> I just you have, you have to be to do it. You really have to commit to it, and you have to be brilliant at it. So, a lot of clubs below the very top rung clubs who do it often end up looking more foolish than the ones who are really good at it because they don't really have the players or the um, the coaching structure to to play that way on a consistent basis and they're up against pressing teams who are so good at the press that you know you you think why do they why are they trying to do this and it's a risk reward thing isn't it that there are sometimes you very occasionally you'll see a goal score which is exactly how um a coach envisages that working like if you you think about Aubameyang's goal in the in the community shield that was exactly why you do that they invited the press, played out two passes, I think, and basically they're in at the, the back four and they score. That is at times what Everton will want to try and do this season. You could argue, do they have the players to do that? Yes and no. If they get it right on the training field and they commit to it and they have the confidence to do it, there's no reason why they can't do it. But there will be times when it's made to look stupid because even, even the best teams, even the, your cities and your Barcelonas, when they come up against really good teams, are sometimes made to look stupid when they try to do that. Sure. So, you know, it, it's a risk-reward <laughs> thing. It's, a, it's, it's about the balance. It's the, um, to me, it's the equivalent. It, it's, it's like it, I put it in the same sort of box as zonal marking. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, why do did, why did teams that are not very good at defending play zonal marking? <laughs> because, yes, the very best teams play zonal marking and play it very effectively. But as you say, you know, occasionally get caught out. But the, I, I guess the statistics will show over a period of time there are more benefits than there are um, ne- negatives to it. And well, I suppose... On, on, on zonal marking, I was once, it was once pointed out to me, and it, this does make sense, that a lot of the times the manager decides whether to do zonal marking or man-to-man based on his goalkeeper and the goalkeeper's characteristics. Right. You play one way if you have a goalkeeper who loves to come out and punch and dominate his area, and you play another way if, if he doesn't. Um, so you look at Pickford and you think, well, which, which style suits him? If you've got a goalkeeper who wants to come out and punch, um, you, need to, you don't need bodies all around one area. You, know? you need space for him to come out and be able to do that. Personally, I'd like to see people do that a little more. Um, but I think sometimes a manager's decision is dictated by what kind of goalkeeper he has and, and what he thinks his best characteristics are. Uh, that's, that's just a really interesting thought. I'd never, I'd never even considered that. So um, <laughs> I've, I've learned. You find as well with, with zonal that some managers like to do it in certain situations and not others. So teams will play zonal marking from... I don't know, from, from a free kick from a certain area of the pitch, but they yeah. won't do it at a corner, for instance, because it's, it's a slightly different setup. And again, it, it depends on what your keeper likes to do. So I think really Ancelotti will look at Pickford and think what is the best defensive system at set pieces for him. Fair enough. Paul, we've been talking for just over an hour. So um, in, in, in summary, you are relatively confident um, going into this season? If they get it right, it could be a very, very good season. And there are teams in that middle part of the league who are essentially no better, I don't think, than Everton. 
Um, there teams who went past them last season, uh, Wolves being the obvious um, one to, to pick out, for instance. But if, if Ancelotti can get them right, and I've, I've looked at what he's done in, in, against bigger teams and how they performed in, in those games, I think we should be looking at a good season and a pick-up from Everton, and there is no reason why the squad, if it ends up being as we expect, can't finish in the top six. So I'm reasonably confident he can achieve that if things go right and he gets things right. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm delighted that you're confident. <laughs> <laughs> um, where can people find you on social media, Paul? Uh, I'm PB Sports Writer on Twitter. Right. My, my um, and, and you have a, a little hidden gem, don't you, in your in your blog that you sometimes write on? I have two blogs. Yeah, um, um, blame it on the ball boy is, is probably the one that that contains most um, uh, Everton stuff on it. But I also do a little. Um, it's just a bit of fun, really, about what what journalists get up to when when they travel around the world. That was the hack in Rio that started um, at the World Cup. Um, which became a, a bit of a, a cult thing amongst my um, my wife's school run mums. They're keeping an eye on you. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, which I don't update too often, but but it's still updated on, on a semi regular basis. Yeah, so I quite quite enjoy doing that. Okay, well, I'll, I'll make sure there's link, links to that on that. Just actually, it's an interesting point. If you've got two minutes. How, yeah. how much has the reporting world changed in, in a post-COVID environment? Uh, everything's changed. Um, we do everything now by, by Zoom. Yep. I don't think I have met a player or coach face-to-face since lockdown started. And there doesn't seem to be much um, prospect of that happening anytime soon either. Uh, have you attended any matches to report? I mean, obviously there weren't many for a long period matches. of then. Yeah, quite quite a few. I've, I've been to to most of the London clubs still, and and to Wembley, but it's a very soul destroying atmosphere. Um, I'm slightly sad that it, it's almost become normalised to watch these games on TV with with the fake crowd noise and, and feel like nothing's really changed too much. It's become normal to watch that and, and not not think about the fans not being there. But when you're in the stadium, it's it's deathly silent and you're sitting sort of meters away from anyone else with a mask on and okay it's it's quite fun sometimes to hear the benches and the managers complain and you can hear what's said to the referee but the novelty of that wore off after about a week really uh, I, I just missed the atmosphere of, of fans in the stadium and I'm sure the players do too it's, it's very strange very very strange I feel a bit sorry for the players in, in many ways because it doesn't feel like real football and it's and it's very hard to judge there might be some players who respond to it better than others and who actually maybe prefer is, is the wrong word, but for whom playing in that kind of environment suits them because they don't react, respond well sometimes when fans get on their backs. But football without fans is, is nothing. We just need them back, basically. Can't wait for them. Can't wait for fans to come back. Yeah, I, um, I decided I wasn't going to watch any of the remaining nine games because it was fundamentally opposed to the I understood the reasons why the league had to start but I was opposed to the league starting for a whole a whole raft of reasons so um I, I've got to sort of, <laughs> I've got to make a decision even if I'm going to watch it on, uh, on on TV which I suppose I will actually because um fresh season and stuff I can justify it to myself but um 
They will have a bigger problem this season because all the players have been away on foreign holidays. Lots of them are coming back testing positive. Um, You had the the restart of European leagues and um, the Nations League with players crossing borders into countries with spikes. And I think you will see a lot more cases in in the next few weeks, which is going to make it much more problematic not just for the Premier League, but for clubs all around Europe. You're going to see some very strange situations. And saw yesterday that UEFA said that if any of these matches for any reason can't be, um, can't go ahead, ultimately we could see results decided by the drawing of lots. I mean, it it could be very, very messy this season. Let's hope it isn't. I'm very surprised that the Premier League came back got everything done and managed to achieve it with a minimum of fuss and a minimum of, of positive cases. But this season is going to be much, much more challenging. I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And I think you, you could see some problems cropping up when you, when you get closer to Christmas. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I have a feeling that you may be right. I mean, I'll clearly hope that, hope that you're not. But um, let's finish on a positive. You are forecasting Everton to, uh, to get sixth. Uh, any chance of a, a cup victory? <laughs> um, it depends, I guess, how 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 Ancelotti rates the, the the cup competitions because traditionally managers in in that spot who you know run a club that that shouldn't really be in danger of going down but probably isn't really going to quite get into the Champions League should be targeting cup competitions like that. But the, the pressure is so high to finish as high as possible in the league that. I wonder if Ancelotti will do that. Mm. Um, he, he's won cups in in various countries before, so it's it's quite it's quite possible. But essentially, the, the draw decides who who wins the cup and how seriously the the teams with a, a squad like City's take it. So I, I couldn't say. I don't think anyone could predict that a team like Everton will will win a, a domestic trophy this year. It would be. It would be ridiculous to, to say so. They've certainly got a chance. I, I wonder how much Ancelotti really wants to, though. I think that he, his job is to get them into Europe and finish as high as possible in the table. And he's not going to take any risks with that if he's playing a, a quarterfinal, you know, before a big game in the league. Shame. <laughs> <laughs> much as we'd all like to see it, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, I just think it's, a, I think it's a, a monkey on our back that we just have to get rid of, you know. I understand entirely the, the, the relevance and the importance of finishing as high up the Premier League as possible, particularly if we're, you know, on on the sort of edge of qualifying for Europe. I, I get that totally, but there's, there's not there's not a fan base around the country that doesn't deserve um, at least one day in the sun, like like Everton. The, the, the irony would be that we would win a trophy in an empty stadium, of course. But um, yeah, think, which would be terrible. But you know, we'd we'd take it. We, one, thing exactly. on, one thing at least on, on Carlo, I think with a manager of that stature and, and Naus, in a one-off situation, in, in a knockout cup game, there's more potential for someone with, with that kind of thinker's brain. Yeah, the tactical um, Naus, yeah. Yeah, to pull off something special that makes a little difference, you know, a little, a little tweak that you know can, can get them in against a, a bigger side or, or get them over the hump. So I think, you know... It, if an Everton manager is going to win a cup, I'd like to think that, that Carlo Ancelotti is, is the one who would do it of all the managers we've had in the last, you know, since, since 95. You'd like to think that on a, on a one-off, on a one-to-one basis in a, in a big game, he would give you an edge against most teams. So who knows? Fingers crossed. 
fingers crossed. Paul, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating listening to your views. Um, no problem. I'm sure Pleasure. everybody's enjoyed it. And, um, you know, you're welcome on any time um, in the future. Thanks very much.